ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. On the show today, we catch up with the company that makes rain dance machines. We started from the early days, probably 20 years ago in Darwin, um, with Bushfires NT and now uh, 200 machines operating on top of Australia, dropping around 5 million capsules a year now. Mm, do you know what a rain dance machine is? Do you know what they do? They're a vital piece of equipment in northern Australia. I'll tell you more about it in a moment. Also today, how are Territory beekeepers feeling about the new national management plan for Varroa mite? You'll hear from beekeepers in Alice Springs and Catherine before 1.30. We are broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC. If you need to duck out for whatever reason, remember, you can download our podcast and listen at a time that suits you. Now, first up today, let's head straight to Alice Springs, which today is hosting the Isolated Children's Parents Association's State Conference. Our reporter, Victoria Ellis, is there. It is lunchtime at the conference. How's it all going, Tori? G'day, Matt. Oh, it smells good. The lunch has been laid out in front of me and I'm standing in the foyer and soon everybody will be spilling out from in the conference room out into here ready to get a feed. People have come from hundreds, there are thousands of kilometres from all around the Territory. They've brought their passion. There's been a great focus in the room. There's been parents, ICPA members and anybody else who's working in remote education, about 50 people in total, and everybody's put their brains together to discuss some of the pressing issues for families living remotely in the Northern Territory in relation to all aspects of education, from early childhood right through to tertiary education. So that's a lot of, a lot of things to discuss there, Matt. Mm. <laughs> and one of the people that I caught up with this morning was Kerry Scott from Mountain Valley Station in the Top End. She's got three kids at boarding school in Queensland and she says that the rising cost of sending kids to boarding school is forcing some remote families to leave the Northern Territory. So once you've navigated the distance education system and your children are starting to get into those high school years, uh, it becomes very, very difficult to do that on your own. And for most children in an isolated schoolroom, boarding is the only option really of where you can send your kids away and they can continue their education in a balanced environment so um, you, it is very uh, difficult time in your life to make that decision but it's the, the choices are limited. How many friends do you have who ended up leaving the Northern Territory because they didn't want to send their children to boarding school? Well I would have to say that uh, there's only a handful I know that have actually stayed. Once your children get to that point where you're starting to think about how you are going to get them through school, it it's so expensive. It just it just seems out of reach for for average families how they're going to afford boarding school, how that's going to work. Do they really want to be away from their children? Uh, it, it's a really tough time, and for most people. It's too tough and they'll leave. So there's two things that you sort of mentioned there, the financial pressures. What are some of those costs? Well, you've got, you know, the tuition fees and the boarding fees from the school, but 
On top of that as well, you've also got the travel. We've, we're quite unique in the Territory in the distances that we need to travel and our limited choices of travel. Uh, and many of us uh, spend a day travelling in a vehicle just to get to an exit or get to a major point where you can get on a plane or you can get to a boarding facility in the Territory. So um, travel is probably one of the biggest issues that we have. Um, and co- you also mentioned emotional impacts of sending a child to boarding school. Can you describe what that's like as a parent to say goodbye to your loved one? Well, it it's an indescribable feeling, really. It's uh, It's something that none of us want to do. Nobody wants to send their kids away. Nobody wants to have their children away from them. Uh, but it's a necessity, unfortunately. And we want the best for our children. We want our children to have a, a well-balanced and, and a fair education. And we want them to to make their life in the Territory. So we don't want to pick up and move somewhere else. And for most of us that are still here, it's because possibly we can't. We are tied to our businesses and our, and our families. Uh, so it's it's a it's a huge deal and it's it, it's heartbreaking and um, for some families it's easier and others every day is a struggle. Uh, so you know it's not something to be taken lightly. The Isolated Children's Parents Association has been able to offer support to parents who are sending students to boarding schools. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, when I first, uh, about 10 years ago, I became involved with the ICPA and that was through just trying to navigate that distance education system and how I was ever going to be able to work out how to teach my own children. Uh, And then that grew into the boarding experience. And ICPA has really been um, a godsend. The networking, the shared experiences... Um, and also we're a very powerful um, advocacy group and we can go we go to the very top um, we, we speak with the Department of Education the ministers um, on a on a state and federal level so um, there's power in numbers and we're a force to be reckoned with what more support would you like to see, see at a state and federal level to help parents who are thinking about sending their kids to boarding school well a lot of money gets flow uh, filtered into remote education but not necessarily into that isolated children's factor because in the territory there are a lot of remote schools um, yet we don't see that money so um, it, it would be advantageous um, for the the state government to um, accept that there are the, that there is a responsibility there for them to uh, assist us in what is a compulsory education for our kids um, and also you know I briefly discussed earlier that I believe the federal government also have a, a, a position there that they could increase our assistance. That is Kerry Scott, who is from Mountain Valley Station up in central Arnhem Land. She's got three kids at boarding school. G'day to Isla, Colt and Zali, if they're listening. (laughs) And Kerry, we're speaking to Victoria Ellis, who is at the ICPA's state conference this afternoon being held in Alice Springs. Uh, Tori, the keynote speaker for this conference, who is it? 
Yeah, it's Julie Sexton who is going to be talking about special needs. I believe Julie is a speech pathologist. And one of the issues that's come up throughout this conference is that there is a more need for special education teachers and for home tutors to have more education in helping students with special needs. So it'll be really interesting to hear what she has to say because like a lot of other places um, around Australia and it's just enhanced in remote Australia and the remote Northern Territory, further out you are, the harder it is to access all those different sorts of services. Mm, yep, yep. Now, the conference, it's running a little bit behind schedule this afternoon. Uh, everyone's still in the hall. They haven't come out for lunch just yet. So we might cross back to you later on in the program, Tori, if that's okay, and hopefully have a chat to ICPA President Moira Lanzarin. So I'll, I'll let you get back to it and might chat to you later on in the show. Sounds good. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Tori. That's uh, Victoria Ellis, who this afternoon's at the ICPA State Conference being held in the Ellis. My name's Ashley from Bam Bam Spring Station. I'm Jacqueline Dakin from Anthony Lagoon. I'm Georgie from Catherine. And you're listening to the Country Hour. <laughs> <laughs> And it's 20 to 1 on a Thursday lunchtime. I trust you are well. Now, the federal government has this week tabled legislation to establish a new biosecurity protection levy. This levy, it's due to start on July 1 and will raise about $1 billion a year. Importers, they will be forking out the most money for this. Importers will pay 48% of the fund taxpayers, you, you listening, you'll contribute 44%. The agricultural sector will chip in 6% and Australia Post 2%. Now farmers have long cried out for better biosecurity. But this levy is not getting much love from the sector. Here's National Farmers Federation President David Johinke. Even the industry... Importing the goods have said that suggested that they have the capacity to take on uh, these costs. We've seen researchers and people within the industry demonstrate that this is a complex way of gathering uh, additional funding. And the fact that up until this last moment we haven't had any genuine oversight, and even now we're not sure on the makeup of what that oversight is and how it operates, means that this bill needs to be reconsidered. It's just too rushed. The industry's been pushing for more biosecurity funding and a sustainable biosecurity funding model for, for years. Can you be accused of, of making the perfect be the enemy of the good in this situation? We can be accused of um, the perfect being the enemy of the good, but we could also be championed for actually highlighting the deficiencies and actually trying to get a better system in place. That is President of the National Farmers Federation, David Johinke, speaking to John Daly. Dr Chris Parker is the Chief Executive of Cattle Australia. Uh, Chris, this levy, it's now been tabled in Parliament. It seems the NFF is not a fan. David Johinke has called the policy a dud. What does Cattle Australia make of this? Look, there's probably two things to this, mate. The first is is that uh, we've been concerned for some time, as uh, as I'm sure your listeners are aware of uh, the introduction of this biosecurity levy. But our view had been that if the government is going to persist with into, with putting this in place, we needed it to be more equitable. And uh, what we've been lobbying very strongly for is to have uh, a say in which uh, in the manner in which the biosecurity system is run. And you feel like you now have that. 
Uh, well, the government announced uh, yesterday and invited Cattle Australia onto a panel, and uh, it's our understanding, and uh, very clearly from discussions I had last night with the minister, that uh, there his expectation is is that panel will oversight the entire biosecurity system. Um, this, for me, is a win. Um, not so much the levy, um, and we still be uh, still be up there talking to uh, cross benches about the levy, but. The panel itself is uh, the first time that industry's had an oversight of uh, what's been going on and where the money's spent and how it's spent, and uh, that's a positive. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that the introduction of this levy, we believe, has been uh, mishandled. Again, the National Farmers Federation president says, this is a quote, it's pretty clear this panel has been tacked on at the 11th hour to try and give this levy some credibility, and he is cynical about it. What gives you confidence? Um, I'm not particularly interested in whether it gives the levy credibility. What I'm interested in is whether grass-fed cattle producers get a seat at the table to allow them allow them to have an influence over where and how biosecurity money is spent. Mate, we've known for a long while that, uh, that a lot of the threats are in the north, um, and I'm sure a heck of a lot of your listeners are, are acutely aware um, of, uh, of where these threats are coming from, and... From our perspective, we've supported the government's moves to uh, both increase funding and provide more sustainability in that funding for biosecurity. Being a member of this panel is going to allow us to try and direct that funding, but also to continue to push for more funding that's better targeted. So at this stage, Chris, have you got a sense on how much cattle producers might be paying when this levy (laughs) kicks into gear? So we're still in discussions with the Department of Agriculture and the Minister's Office about exactly what it looks like. But if it's done on GVP and it's done on the uh, percentages that uh, that I've seen, um, it will be about 18% of uh, the cattle industry share will be about 18% of $51 million, which will be about $9 million. And have you worked out what that could mean per beast sold? Well, this is the the collection mechanism is still to be negotiated, mm-hmm, and gotcha. uh, we're very keen to make it uh, equitable. And we certainly don't want to see the old system, which was just ridiculous, where it was charged every time a beast was sold, and that meant that uh, you know we were paying up to three or four times, depending on how many times a beast was sold, and that was totally inequitable. So, are you keen to see this legislation passed in Parliament and for everyone to get on with it? What we'd like to see is this go to committee. I want to see it go to committee and we want to see all the issues brought out so we make sure that if the government is going to persist with this particular way of taking uh, biosecurity funding forward, that uh, it's done in the least harmful way and the most equitable way. On a busy day for you, really appreciate your time for the Country Hour. Thanks so much. Great to be with you, mate. Thank you. Yeah, that's Dr Chris Parker, who's the Chief Executive of Cattle Australia. G'day, I'm Jermaine. G'day, I'm Caleb. And we're from Territory Bees. We're out here in Darwin's rural area attending to some hives and you're listening to The Country Hour. Yes, the biosecurity protection levy has now been tabled in Parliament. It's due to start on July 1. We all know how important biosecurity is. One of the biggest biosecurity threats in Australia at the moment is, of course, Varroa mite. This is a huge threat, not just to the bee and honey industries, but also any crop that relies on bees for pollination. If you've been listening to the Country Hour, you'll be aware that there is a new national management plan now in place for Varroa mite. 
How are Territory beekeepers feeling about this new plan? Uh, you'll hear from some NT beekeepers next. Singing whiskey for my men, beer for my horses. <laughs> right across the Territory on the ABC, you're tuned into the Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. Territory beekeepers have been told to keep a close eye on their hives as Australia now moves into a new management strategy for the pest Varroa mite. The mite, it attaches itself to bees, it kills them, it can completely destroy hives and of course is a huge threat to not just honey production but also plant industries that rely on bees for pollination. We spoke to Sally Heaton, the NT's Acting Chief Plant Health Officer on Monday's Country Hour, who explained to us this new $100 million plan. What this new response plan does now, it recognises, it's called a transition and management plan. So we tried our best to eradicate uh, 14 months of really high intense work and unfortunately we couldn't eradicate. Uh, so now we're going to help beekeepers transition to managing Varroa. So how are Territory beekeepers feeling about this new plan and the threat of Varroa mite? Victoria Ellis went to visit Alice Springs-based beekeeper Grace Gerrand. Oh, hi, I'm Grace Gerrand, the biosecurity officer for the Alice Springs beekeepers. Well, actually, I formed the group uh, back in 2016, and it's just uh, slowly growing from there. And regarding Varroa, well, it's just a case of um, being prepared and what to look for as far as the NT is concerned at this stage. And as far as um, New South Wales is concerned, they're still getting uh, still just a management stage, and there'll be uh, that'll be coming out later how to deal with those that unfortunately have already got Varroa. The Northern Territory is a long way from New South Wales, but people do bring bees across to the Northern Territory from the eastern states. How concerned are you here that there could be Varroa mite make its way to the centre? It'll happen one day, but it, who knows how long it will take. Just bees can be hitchhikers um, you know, on trucks and things like that, just like they are on yachts and how they get into the country. Uh, and the other way is by um, which I, you can't really bring bees into the NT unless you're bringing in queens where there's certificates that have to be filled out by the provider and the receiver to go to the DPI. And also when you, when you are a beekeeper it is uh, compulsory to be register your hive mainly so that you can be notified if there's any outbreaks and if there is where they are and if you're in, involved in that area. What do you think of a management strategy versus an eradication strategy? Oh, I think it was disaster what happened to those poor guys over there. But anyway, it's happened. And um, it's just, I guess they weren't expecting it. I knew it was going to come in one day, but they weren't expecting it the day it arrived. And uh, everything went into chaos as far as from where I'm sitting anyway. You know, we just got to be prepared and the other states have just got to learn, learn the lessons that New South Wales and uh, get ready. It's just a case of... Um, being keeping involved with your DPI so you're up to date with whether it be NT or, or New South Wales New South Wales being our largest uh, honey producer in Australia so they'll be on on the ball and get everything to ready yeah. the ABA Australian Amateur Beekeepers Association are um, Australia yeah they they're actively moving into the uh, management of the bees 
That is Grace Jarrett, who is a beekeeper in the Alice with about 40 hives, and she's also the biosecurity officer for Alice Springs Beekeepers. She was speaking there to Victoria Ellis. Further north, Stephen Rose, he's got beehives at his nursery at Edith Farms, just outside of Catherine, and he believes the main risk of varroa mite getting into the Territory will be through people. The biggest risk would be um, it being brought in with bee equipment or queen bees that brought in unintentionally on on something like that. Um, as far as our borders go, well, we've got a um, pretty good buffer across the Barclay and um, down in the arid areas. It's hard for wild bees to get across and have varroa mite on them. So, And also WA is the same. Um, you know, uh, they'd have to get it uh, through their border down uh, down south where where they uh, monitor it very well and the the natural environment is not that good for wild bees to be able to cross the border. So it would have to be brought in by humans, I'd think, you know, so as long as, but, you know, humans being what they are, eventually someone will make a mistake and, and they'll get here, but um, we need to be uh, vigilant monitoring and um, if it does get here um, be right onto it because we haven't got a huge um, bee honey industry here it's mainly for pollination services and we have um, sort of satellite areas like Alice Springs you know it's isolated from areas like Catherine and Darwin is um, probably a little bit more integrated because you've got the wild bee population that joins the two together Right, and so uh, what would you do if it came to your doorstep? What what would be the first thing you would do? Oh, well, the first thing I'd have to do would be um, to do the insecticide thing like everybody else does, um, which would be a, a shame because it would really, you know, we uh, will end up being one of the last places on the planet where you can have the cleanest, greenest um, honey in the world thereabouts here in the Northern Territory and WA. That is Stephen Rose, who runs a nursery at Edith Farms just outside of Catherine and has got a few beehives there. He was speaking to Yanka Hoot. This week on Landline, we meet a farmer who's faced incredible adversity but is determined to stay on his remote property. I just lay there next to the vehicle knowing I'd had a broken neck. And is this one of the dirtiest jobs in agriculture? Scraping out years' worth of sheep poo from under the shearing shed. I could drag out 20 tonne a day, no problem, yeah. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. And the market report, Pip. How good is the market report? Let's turn our attention now to some resources news. The company that runs the lithium mine just outside of Darwin has terminated its contract with a mining services provider. Dan Fitzgerald joins me in the studio. What's the story here with Core Lithium? Yeah, so this goes back to January when Core Lithium announced it would suspend further mining at its Finnis site just outside of Darwin because of weak global lithium markets. Core Lithium now says it has mutually agreed to end its mining services contract it had with Lucas Total Contract Solutions. And Core Lithium will now pay Lucas $10 million in settlement company says this will cover demobilisation costs, contractual charges, and it will release both parties from further claims. 
And as for the future, well, Core Lithium said it would now work to identify alternative mining solutions for its open pit should it restart in the future. And Core Lithium is continuing to process uh, some stockpiles of ore that it had left over when it made that decision to halt mining. Um, in January, it said that would likely continue until about mid this year. Okay, thank you, Dan. When this was announced, Core Lithium copped a bit of a hiding on the stock exchange, but things looking a, a bit rosier this afternoon. Shares in core are up by 6.9%. Year-to-date, however, shares in this company have fallen by 14%. Uh, Dan, you following the cricket over in Tasma- uh, over in New Zealand? We're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, quite a few wickets down there. We're in trouble. New Zealand won the toss, elected to bowl, and we're 5 for 170. All sorts of trouble. Troubles over there. If you're a cricket fan, you can follow it via the ABC app. G'day, I'm Emma. G'day, I'm Tara. And welcome, welcome to Mimi College, College, and you're listening to Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. In a moment, we'll be crossing back to the Isolated Children's Parents Association's state conference, which is being held in Alice Springs. You'll be hearing from the president of the ICPA. And before 1.30, you'll get to meet the company that is in the business of building rain dance machines. We started from early days, probably 20 years ago in Darwin, um, with Bushfires NT, and now uh, 200 machines operating on top of Australia, dropping around 5 million capsules a year now. This is all coming up in our second half of the country hour. First, let's go to the Weather Bureau. Sally Cutter is there, and... On the topic of rain, Sally, there's been a bit in the last 24 hours. What are some of the best totals up to 9 o'clock this morning? Okay, up to 9 o'clock this morning, the best one was Adelaide River West with 67.5 millimetres. The Pines had 46.2 in that Douglas, Rich, Rich, Douglas River catchment. The Townsend Creek, 33. Fault Headland, 31. Theona Station, 31 as well. The upper well, West Waterhouse was 24. The Douglas River Research Farm was 23 millimetres. Beswick had 20. Cullen River, 19. The Border Creek had 14 millimetres. The Central Waterhouse, 14 as well. There's quite a lot. Falkaringis had 12 millimetres. Tennant Creeks had 11. The Quinders, 7. The Voice has had 5.2, but they've also had a pretty good dumping since 9 o'clock. And in four hours, they end up with 28.2 millimetres. Oh, 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 rightio. Has there been more rain along the Plenty Highway? Other other rain gauges reporting good news since nine o'clock? Oh, we we don't have that much many to rain gauges out that way. The mounts the of the ones that do report some some of them just report twenty four hourly when they're mainly red, but the ones that automatically report Mount Stowe, which is again up back up in the daily had eleven point six, Catherine River, Cape River had 10 millimetres, Bowl at MacArthur River had 9 millimetres, Nooka 8.6. Uh, yep. We don't yep. have that many down further south, unfortunately. Calcarinji's had 0.5. Understood, but just looking at the Alice Springs radar this afternoon, it's got oh, some nice Christmas sunny. tree action. There's all sorts yep. of colour. Yeah, and you notice that there's a fairly sort of sharp line that hopefully will, for people to the south of Alice Springs, will fill in. But the heavy, most of the stuff I think is banked up on the ranges at the moment. So the south of the ranges is just a little bit quiet, but there is something out further east that looks like it might be coming around the southern side of the range, so you could see something later today, and so, so don't rule it out. 
Okay, and for those in central Australia and the southern part of the Barkley, how much rain might they get in the coming days? Oh, it depends on whether you get underneath one of those storms. Like Joyce said, 28 millimetres out of a storm. It's probably, most of it's probably gone over the top of them by now. But we could see sort of 20 millimetres out of those storms over the next few days. Generally, probably got, because, you, because they are going to be sort of convective, you, you're going to be sort of get, have gaps in the middle. But we are looking at some heavy falls around sort of the southern half of the NT or, or south of about Tea Tree on tomorrow and then maybe up through the Tanami and, and Leicester just from storms that are a little bit slow moving. So we could see some bigger totals there too. Okay. And for those in the top end, what should they be aware of? Uh, continuing showers and storms. At the moment, we've got that westerly steering, so the people, anybody on the west coast, will, right on the coast, will probably have struggled to get anything. But once you get a little bit further inland, you certainly do have the chance of seeing those showers and storms around the place. They may even see some stuff coming down off the Tiwi Islands onto the northwest top end. So it's, it's having a good go at it. It may get here. The, so just there's 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 rain around. Probably at the moment the quietest area is out to the southeast Arnhem Land, but should expect that to just fill in once the afternoon heating gets going. Okay, on the text zero four eight seven double nine one zero five seven, Sprinkles reporting that it's another perfect day out here at Bino with big thunder over the islands, and Ben this afternoon. Sally Cutter wants to know what yep. the weather's going to do in Catherine today as I'm driving there later on. Okay, so there's showers and coming down through them. They might see a storm a bit later. The, there is sort of a bit of a line, and so we sort of come down. Everything's going coming from the north-northeast, but it's, it does have a little bit of, sort of south-east movement, so there's a clear area behind it. But I think looking at the satellite, that's filling in, whereas the stuff a bit further north comes down. So we're looking at afternoon showers and storms the, as far as the temperatures go. For Catherine, we're looking at the top of 34 today mm-hmm. and a pretty good chance of actually getting at least 0.2 of a mil in the rain gauge. Okay, and just before I let you go, have you ever come across a rain dance machine, Sally Cutter? No, but I have a sneaking suspicion I've heard about it, but I, don't, I, I wouldn't say that I've actually, mm-hmm. is what I'm thinking of, what, is what you're talking about. But it's, Have it's, a stab, what do you think it is? Uh, something that throws things out. <laughs> so, so, spin, uh, so my 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 view is sort of having sort of whole, something spinning and a whole lot of things hanging off it. And, yeah. Yeah. Hey, I think you might be on the money, Sally Cutter. Thanks for your time this afternoon. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Appreciate it, Sally Cutter. There at the Weather Bureau, we've got a report here from Wazza. who says there's lightning and rain just north of the Bond Springs airstrip. In Central Australia. Yeah, thanks for the tip there, Wazza. The Alice Springs radar has got a bit of action about it this afternoon. I wonder if the good folk who have headed along to the ICPA conference can hear thunder in the background. We'll head back there next. G'day, this is John Little here. I'm from Ilzajari Outstation, out on the Ernest Giles, and you're listening to the ABC Country Hour. Yeah, the Isolated Children's Parents Association State Conference is on today in Alice Springs. Let's head back there now. Our reporter, Victoria Ellis, is there. 
Out of interest, Tori, can you hear some thunder in the background? No, but it is very overcast and humid in town today. And last night, um, I was actually going for a swim and a big storm cloud rolled in very quickly and we got a single drop, a single drop of rain. Um, so I'm not surprised to see that that's what the weather's doing. Hopefully, hopefully you get some rain of significance later on this afternoon. Uh, you're there now with the president, El Presidente yes. of the ICPA. <laughs> Yes, Moira Lasman is here with me. Moira, um, what has been, actually, first of all, what was your journey like to get here? Uh, thanks very much, Tori. And so we left home yeah, just outside Mataranka Tuesday morning in the dark to tall green grass and rain. And the, so we didn't know what might be ahead of us. And so potholes and dodging, some water over the road. And then just the transformation of the travel down was amazing. Uh, the, it's a beautiful drive, but then all of a sudden you're into 42 degrees and open blue skies and burnt ground and uh, bare dirt. Um, and so it's a good white eye opener that not everybody was having mould and fat cattle and um, the joys of monsoonal weather. And worth it to make that or hike all the way here because it's been a fantastic conference so far. There's been a lot of different motions that have been raised, but can you outline some of what they have been? Yeah, thanks, Tori. And so this morning yeah, we had an amazing initial session with boarding and allowances and some good first-hand sharing of information about the hows and the whys of we choose yeah, yeah, to do boarding and that it's not because yeah, we wish to that we're elite or anything else because it's the best uh, decision for our children regardless of how hard it is on us emotionally or financially to send them away. If, uh, and so we've then talked about um, early childhood uh, support for Central Australia already today. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more because in the top end, there's kicks, but in Central Australia, we don't have an organisation like that that brings early learning to people in remote Central Australia, do we? Well, we're getting options. And so Kylie Jones at Raised Education's uh, doing an amazing job. Yeah, through ICPA advocacy, we're, we're working with yeah, families as first teachers and yeah, the um, school of air and stuff. But really, we, we don't have any long-term funding solutions for the ongoing continuity and provision of those services and so because the needs there we've um, been making things happen which is exactly how kicks uh, came about 30 plus years ago because ICPA saw the need and they made it happen and then uh, through hard work and dedication the funding sources followed and so we're hoping that that same type of system or dedication or persistence and dog at a bone yeah, approach will actually give the very greatly needed services for Central Australia's littlest ones. Speaking of that dogged determination, you know, I've really seen it today. There's so many people who are very passionate about making sure that their children and other children who live in remote Northern Territory get the access to quality education that they deserve. And a lot of people have been voting unanimously on decisions. Can you tell me what that says about the need for some of these changes? Yeah, look, and so it says yeah, a couple of things. Yeah, that a lot of the motions are just good common sense and needed, yeah, and needed by us all. It also says and pays tribute to 
the hard work and preparation done uh, by members and branches and state council before conference. But then again, and at times there's heated debate because one size does not fit all. We are unique. Every classroom, every family is different and every student's need is different. And so we really do need that bespoke, uh, tailored um, education uh, or options or availability and choices for our families. And so uh, the uh, many and varied, um, and we all know that diversity is healthy and good, doesn't matter whether you're talking about the environment, the financial or around a boardroom table. Still on the topic of the volunteers of the people who make up the ICPA, you noted it yourself in your address, They're, these are volunteers who are doing lots of other things at the same time. Can you tell me a little bit about yeah. that? Uh, look, uh, ICPA is 100% run by volunteers and like in corporate speak, we're the shareholders, the directors and the workers of ICPA all at the same time and so it's huge and we all yeah, volunteer and dedicate and effectively yeah, our businesses or our families are also effectively sponsors and pro bono supporters of ICPA but that is one of the best strengths and greatest weaknesses of our association. We are so passionate and we can speak with authority because it is our lived experience. And the fact that um, we're about education and children grow. And so that also means that we have fresh and current faces constantly coming through, which is just so, so, so powerful. One of the other things that has come across today to me watching in is that so many of the changes that the ICP is fighting for, ICPA is fighting for, is things that require funding. If you could be speaking to the Territory Ministers or a Federal Minister at the moment, what was it you'd be saying to get their support to get across what you want to happen? Look, um think families out back and I was like and to support families in the bush you need to make education more accessible and not so not so hard either so support the finances and there look after the medical access the communications the roads if those key tenements are sorted, business will flourish once you've got strong families who want who it's not so hard to live out where we want to live, yeah, the business and the economy will flow around it. Yeah, but at the end of the day, the bush, the regions desperately need families and um, we want to be here, but we need to be able to have education, medical, roads and communications, pure and simple. Moira, Moira Lanzarin, I <laughs> got there then, Moira. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, Tori. Always a pleasure. Moira Lanza in there, Matt. Isn't she a wonder woman? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I hope uh, the season treats her well there at the back of Matarenka. Thank you so much, Tori, for taking us all to the ICPA conference this afternoon. Uh, still plenty to come. So I hope everyone enjoys it. And I hope the Alice gets a little bit of rain this afternoon as well. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Cheers. That's uh, Victoria Ellis, our reporter in the Alice at the ICPA conference this afternoon. It's 19 past one and you are tuned into the Country Hour. Uh, just quickly to some breaking news. A British container ship containing 41,000 tonnes of fertiliser has been attacked by Houthi rebels and is now sinking in the Red Sea. I've just seen some videos of this and... 
Well, it's awful. It's awful. The 24 crew members, they've been forced to abandon ship. And satellite images show that this vessel is now leaking oil in the Red Sea. Grains analyst Andrew Whitelaw has just spoken to Belinda Varischetti about this situation. Let's have a listen. This is 41,000 tonnes of fertiliser heading to Bulgaria. And it just it should have minimal, like really no impact whatsoever. Because the reality is... It's a large quantity when you think about it, but the reality is there's a couple of hundred thousand, maybe half a million tons of fertilizer on the sea at any one point. So one vessel, whilst it's a, it's a bit of a definitely an environmental disaster, it's not going to be a material impact for, for farmers in Australia. So, And obviously this one wasn't on its way to Australia anyway. It was heading to Bulgaria, I think it was. But how many ships would be on the water heading to Australia? Yeah, so, so from our contacts who work in the fertiliser industry, uh, they reckon there's at least 11 vessels booked just for urea to come to Australia in the next two months. That's at least. So I think the only really impact we could say about it is just really the fact that this attack does highlight how precarious that situation is in the Red Sea, which which takes about you know, 12 to 15% of global trade goes through that area. We've seen a lot of attacks. We've seen dozens upon dozens of attacks, missile attacks since November. But this is like a really quite a, obviously quite a big one because the vessel's actually, you know, keeling over and sinking. Uh, it does show that it is a risk transiting that area. And maybe ship owners might be a little more reluctant to go through that area uh, from now on in. What we've got to be highlighting at the moment is that a lot of vessels already were transiting around the, the sort of the, the tip of South Africa instead of going through the Red Sea. Things like our phosphates from Morocco are going that route. It doesn't mean it's not coming. It just means it's taken longer, you know, 10 to 15, 17 days extra. But it is obviously costing a bit more. More days at sea just cost more. And so it is an extra cost. But it's not a case of it's not coming. You better buy your fertilizer now because it's not going to come. That's not the fact. The fact is it is coming, but it will be potentially delayed. But it's still early days. This is something that the industry has known about for at least two months. There's Andrew Whitelaw, who is with the Episode3.net team, speaking to Belinda Varischetti about that container ship carrying fertilizer, which has been sunk in the Red Sea and is now leaking oil. Right across northern Australia, Indigenous rangers generate carbon credits through early season burning to prevent larger fires later in the year. And one of the most important tools in their kit for doing this sort of work is something that's known as the rain dance machine. It helps rangers light fires from the air, which is crucial when some groups are operating in very remote parts of the Territory. Rob Stevenson is the creator of the Rain Dance Machine. He told Dan Fitzgerald how it works. It's a small machine that sits on the back seat of the helicopter, does that with a seatbelt. Uh, its primary role is to light fires on the ground from the helicopter. So we have boxes in the back of the helicopter of a thousand small incendiaries joined together in a continuous chain. The incendiaries feed through the machine. We inject a liquid into the small capsules. It's then cut off and dropped. The incendiaries drop from the helicopter down from normally around a 200 foot high when they're flying, drops down through the forest canopy, through the grass, sits on the ground, and about a 40 second delay in the fire 
light on an exothermic reaction between the two chemicals. Fires about eight and ten inches high, goes for about a minute and sets fire to the grass and starts the burning process. And how did this machine come about? Uh, I had a previous company where I was at an aviation business and I was doing aircraft maintenance uh, charter for CALM. It was now Parks and Wildlife. I was looking after the aeroplanes, flying them around, and I was look, started looking after their airborne equipment. And one of the pieces of equipment was a locally developed uh, machine that uh, was a, probably weighed 80 or 90 kilos, big machine, with like ping pong balls. It did the same thing. So technology developed in Western Australia from the 70s. And then with my background in aircraft engineering, uh, motorsport and sort of figured we could maybe build a machine that was smaller, lighter, more efficient, safer, easier to use and saw the opportunity potentially to get um, the use of smaller, cheaper helicopters, especially up on the top of Australia where they could um, do more burning, more people back on country, more burning done so we can reduce the devastating effects of wildfires and increase the um, carbon storage. Yeah, and just tell us how important has your invention been to the development of the Savannah carbon burning projects in the north? I think when we started, this, uh, there was no aerial burning up here. The burning in the early days, um, the guys had small spheres with some of the same, same materials in the sphere, and they were hand-injecting uh, with an inoculation needle from the cattle industry and throwing them out by hand out the door as they are going along. So guys would find it particularly difficult. Um, there was a big safety issue with that. Uh, it wasn't very well managed. Um, we saw the need for a small machine that was easy to use, was reliable. The belt feed system means it runs automatically. We have multiple different speeds. We GPS data log all the drops as well, so we've got lots of data. And we started from early days, probably 20 years ago in Darwin, um, with Bushfires NT, and now uh, 200 machines operating on top of Australia, dropping around 5 million capsules a year now. So, so it's probably the, um, the major player in the carbon industry for, for burning up here. And I imagine you're making tweaks to that design all the time. Yeah, we're sort of um, I'm sort of old school from engineering point of view. We're just trying to make products. Obviously, safety is the biggest issue. We're making machines, uh, making fires and helicopters, so very conscious of the safety factor, uh, safety, performance, reliability. Obviously, all the helicopters spread all over the top of Australia, so all, always very remote, uh, long distances. So the machines have to be very, very reliable to operate in that environment. So that's been our focus. And what's the future of the rain dance machine? Uh, there might be some drones involved. Yeah, we've got a couple hundred of the earlier machines. Um, they've been very good, done more. But we see a gap in the future between the guys walking through the bush with drip torches around four kilometres an hour doing what they need to do. And the helicopters are obviously expensive. Um, and then if we can get small incendiary machines on drones, which we figure has got a role to play in the future as an additional tool, then that'll fill the gap between those two. Then they get lots more opportunity for um, different use cases, like at night or off-roads and tracks and um, sensitive areas, and just maybe getting more crews on the ground doing burning, more people back on country, and generally being able to do more burning. And you're testing a drone rain dance machine this year? Yeah, we've got a partnership with Willigan Aboriginal Corporation for burning on their lands. Very remote area, uh, very safe from the CASA point of view, so we want to prove the technology. We've been developing it for about the last four years, so obviously try to build a machine that's very reliable, small, lightweight um, technology based on some of my interests in Formula One and aerospace, um, trying to build the, uh, the smallest, lightest machine with the world's best materials and technologies. And um, yeah, looking forward to getting it out there. That is Rob Stevenson from Rain Dance Systems speaking to Dan Fitzgerald. Someone here on the text says, shouldn't it be called the fire dance machine?
Fair enough. And Wazza, who's a bit north of Alice Springs today, says the country's looking good from Barrow Creek. Bit of a dump on Wednesday near the Devil's Marbles. Creeks turned into rapids. Incredible. And the next day, it was all gone. Thanks for the weather update, Wazza. That wraps up today's Country Hour. Keep it rural.